Thank you. Well, welcome to Low Sunday. Traditionally, Low Sunday, Sunday after Easter is the lowest attendance of the year, <laughs> which is why it's a good idea to invite a guest choir and their families. <laughs> Having been a choir parent, I would like to acknowledge the parents of the choir, if you would stand so we can let them give you a hand for all you do to make this possible. Would you stand if you're a choir parent? Whoa. Amen. I went to a, a small Presbyterian church I grew up in, uh, and we only sang Holy, Holy, Holy if Barbara could be there because Barbara was the only one who could sing the descant. They didn't have 12 Barbaras. And I appreciate your beautiful voices this morning. For some, however, the first Sunday after Easter is also known as Holy Humor Sunday. If you're not familiar with the concept, it might be because you're not a part of the Eastern Orthodox branch of the church. Word has it that on the Monday after Easter in that branch of the church, the priests would gather to share cigars and brandy and jokes to celebrate what God had done on this surprising, transforming day. Easter is more than a Sunday. It's a season of 50 days leading up to Pentecost, which is the ultimate celebration of the outpouring of the Spirit. We spent Lent fasting. We can spend Easter feasting and celebrate the resurrection. I'm wearing my Easter egg tie that I wore last Sunday. I may wear it for five Sundays. <laughs> Diana Butler Bass wrote this morning in her newsletter, in many ways, Easter is particularly countercultural these days. Gloominess and fear and anxiety and attack and distress and stress are the emotional coin of the realm. I'm being countercultural by wearing a tie. The resurrection is a comedy of the best sort, the unexpected reversal of expectations. Mary comes to the tomb Easter morning to find, expecting to find a dead body. And she almost literally stumbles over the risen Lord, who she assumes is the gardener. And she says, can you tell me where they have laid you? Resurrection reverses the expectations of gloom and doom in the face of death and instead brings celebration. This morning's gospel lesson is an example of one of those amazing, astonishing reversals. The disciples were beside themselves with joy. They had seen Jesus. Then enter Thomas. He missed the meeting. I've always felt a sympathy for Thomas. One remark after a particularly traumatic experience, the murder of his master, has tagged him with that label ever since. Even though the rest of his life was marked with faithful service, taking the gospel to, to India, which was not an easy task, and was martyred for his faith, but he was dubbed 
Doubting Thomas. And that name has been used ever since as a euphemism for skeptics. When I was planting Peace Presbyterian Church in Pearland, we shared worship space with an Episcopal church that was planting at the time. It was called St. Thomas Presbyterian, and their website banner said, Doubters Welcome. (laughs) But that's not the whole story of Thomas. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told nothing about Thomas other than listing his name among the twelve. But it's in John's Gospel that we, he emerges as, this, as a distinct personality, even though there's only 155 words about him. The first time we encounter Thomas is in the 11th chapter of John. Jesus has just been informed that his friend Lazarus was so sick he was about to die. Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha lived in Bethany near Jerusalem, but Jesus and his disciples were miles away across the Jordan. They'd gone there to escape the hostility of the temple leaders who had recently tried to have Jesus stoned to death. Then the word came that it was too late. Lazarus was dead. Another two days went by, and Jesus said, let's go to Bethany to see Lazarus. The disciples knew how dangerous it was to make such a trip, even if it was just to pay last respects. But Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep, and I must go wake him. Now they're even more confused. What do you mean? If he's he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own. But Jesus says, I don't mean asleep asleep. I mean asleep as in dead. And then Thomas speaks up and says, well, let us also go that we may die with him. That was an inspiring challenge, but we don't call him inspiring, Thomas. The next time we see Thomas is in the 14th chapter of John. The apostles had gathered to celebrate the Passover. And the master was trying to explain to them that he was going to go away and prepare a place for them. But they did not understand. And for the 11 of them, it was much easier to just let him go on and keep talking in hopes they'd someday someday understand what he's talking about. About my father's house and many mansions and going to prepare a place, but they're afraid to ask, but not Thomas. Thomas said, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. We have that statement because Thomas wasn't afraid to ask for directions, but we don't call him inquiring, Thomas. The third time we meet Thomas is today's gospel reading. It's been nine days since the Friday when Jesus was crucified. From the Sunday after that Friday, the other disciples have been telling him, we have seen Jesus. But Thomas couldn't believe it. And it's not as if he refuses to accept the possibility of being raised after all he had seen that before. That very thing happened with Jairus' daughter the son of the widow of Nain on the way to the cemetery, and with Lazarus four days later. But this was different. Jesus hadn't died of natural causes. His death was an execution with nails and a cross and a spear and blood and water flowing from his side. Thomas says, unless I can see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the nails and my hand in the side, I will not believe. 
And I have to admire Thomas for being so honest with his doubts. But remember, before Jesus appeared to the ten, Mary, who had seen him, told the ten that she had seen him, and they didn't believe her, and they said it was an idle tale. They don't call them the doubting ten. (laughs) Peter denied joining Jesus in the face of an intimidating servant girl, but we don't call him denying Peter. Thomas hadn't seen the risen Lord like the others had. He must have thought his friends were delusional. But then came that next Sunday. And the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas didn't miss the meeting. And the doors were locked. But suddenly, Jesus stood among them. And Jesus said, put your finger in my hands. Put your hand on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas explained, my Lord and my God. David Leninger writes, the message of the gospel to those who cannot see the Easter joy is open your eyes, see what God has done, celebrate it, even laugh about it. Yes, laugh, Thomas. <laughs> Life can be so burdensome. We can be depressed and discouraged and despondent, but get so far down we can't even remember up. Then along comes a day like this, like this, a day of laughter, lightheartedness. For comedy and craziness. A day to celebrate the victory of the resurrection over the death and grave. A day to join our voices with the God who sits in heaven and laughs. A day to remember the word that Jesus said. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus had the last laugh. But still, there are those who doubt because they have not seen I want to tell you about another Thomas. Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant man. He accomplished unbelievable things that contributed greatly to the founding of our country. But when it came to miracles, he was a doubting Thomas. I once wrote a song called Doubting Thomas Jefferson. I have in my hand a copy of the Jefferson Bible. It's actually not the whole Bible. It's a mashup of the four Gospels, and the subtitle is The Life and Morals of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Extracted from the Gospels by Thomas Jefferson. The extractions Thomas made were everything but the miracles. In Jefferson's Bible, the man with a withered hand is brought to Jesus, but he's not healed. The incident just sparks a talking point about what should be done on the Sabbath. The man born blind is brought to Jesus, but he's not healed. The incident sparks another teaching moment about whose fault the blindness was. A man with dropsy is brought to Jesus, but he's not healed. The incident sparks another teaching moment about working on the Sabbath. Jesus goes to Lazarus' grave, but Lazarus is not raised. The incident sparks a teaching moment about talking about the resurrection with Martha. There's no water into wine, no feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000, no walking on water, no raising of Jairus' daughter, no raising of the son of the widow of Nain, no raising of Lazarus, no raising of Jesus. Thomas Jefferson's version of the gospel ends with this. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. They laid there Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Now, I don't know if the original version that Jefferson published had what comes next. But in the published version I have in my hand, it says, the very next page, a biographical sketch of Thomas Jefferson. Brett Blair writes, it's very easy to rewrite history, to say what did not happen. But the story remains. The disciples were witnesses to these events. Thomas Jefferson is, in essence, calling the disciples liars, that they continued throughout the first century for 70 years to propagate these lies. Furthermore, Jefferson's Bible has been robbed of its power. I'm convinced that the church does not accomplish 2,000 years of life inside the walls of a dark, closed sepulcher. There's no power in that dark place. Rather, the church is alive because Christ is alive. When it comes to Thomas's, I'd rather go with the one who finally saw and believed and said, my Lord and my God, than the one who edited out what he hadn't seen and decided it hadn't happened and end this version with leaving Jesus in the tomb. By definition, miracles defy explanation. Miracles point us to the God who defies explanation and requires faith to accept. Since Jesus' coming... And since he's going to prepare a place for us, miracles have continued to occur. Healings still happen. God works within the chemistry of our body. God works through the prayers of our spirit. God works through the longings of our heart. The spot is gone. The old rebellious spirit is no longer there. The anger and the hurt are no longer there. But the important message of today's passage is that Jesus praised faith in people who believed in the absence of signs and wonders. (laughs) Jesus says to Thomas, Blessed are you who have seen me and have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. When he said that, I believe he was looking down the corridor of time and speaking about us. About us. Because we have not seen and yet we believe. There's a staircase on our campus that has this inscription. You may not be able to read it, but it says, Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. One night, long before I returned to be the parish associate here at St. Andrews, I came here for a coffee house live. (coughs) Excuse me. I got here early and decided to take a self-guided tour down memory lane through the building. And when I did, I saw this quote was not there before. And I didn't know who said it because the person who painted it didn't include the author's name. But when my wife Ann and I visited Washington, D.C. for one of her medical conferences, 
I saw the quote again carved into the wall of the memorial for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. While well, Veta Bullock tells a story about pre-civil rights African-American community in Florida. The story says that during the times of political elections, the community would rent a voting machine to go through the voting process. Now, they knew their votes wouldn't be counted, but they voted anyway. When asked by members of the white community why they did this every year, they said, practicing. <laughs> Just practicing. Believing in what is not yet seen means we practice or behave as if it already exists. That's what leaders and visionaries do. They believe in something bigger than themselves, even when they can't see it, and they begin to act as if it is so. What are you practicing? Resurrection? What are you longing to see? What is your next first step? In the summer of 1998, Amanda Van Zant came to serve in Houston's greater third ward in between semesters of college. In 2005, she returned, and with the capable guidance of a board of directors and loving partnership of families in the area, founded Agape Development that we featured in the video this morning. In addition to the numerous programs they provide for all ages, this year, so far, they have built 30 homes, on their way to completing 85 this year. And as you saw in the video, 40 of St. Andrew's members and Boy Scouts spent a morning planting sod around their latest house. Those are among the latest results of Amanda's first step. That's believing Amanda. And in 2006, Mariana... Parna Simpson took a first step. Before there was a treble choir of Houston at Christ Church Cathedral to sing a note, she recruited her first ensemble. Now this morning we got to hear the very latest results of Mariana's first step. That's believing Mariana. One of my friends saw the ad for this morning and said, that's making good trouble. <laughs> Echoing the sentiments of the late Senator John Lewis. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We're in the same situation as Thomas was before Jesus appeared to him, we have not seen Jesus. And even though Thomas couldn't take his friend's word for it, we do. We have to take the word of the disciples and their friends and the people with whom they shared their story. We have to take the word of those who wrote down what they saw and heard and not take away from it. And yet, and yet, we have seen with our eyes this morning on the video and heard with our ears the results of those who have not seen and yet believe. 
We've not only seen results like agape development and heard results like the treble choir, but also we can work and pray to bring about results ourselves. When we do, we will continue to be among those blessed who have not seen and yet believe. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for all that has been recorded in the Gospels that Jesus performed. We rejoice that in the other signs, too numerous to be written down that Christ did among your people then and does now. The peace that has been given to those who have been doubtful, wanting to believe. We exult in the fellowship of our risen Lord and live in the hope of the final triumph of his rule. Where class and race cause hurtful distinctions, help us to proclaim your covenant promises. Where people contend with one another over conflicting ideologies, make us mediators of their differences. And in all that we do, breathe the Holy Spirit upon us as you did those days long ago. So we may stand united as brothers and sisters to the glory and praise of your holy name. Amen.